Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss the opioid crisis with an emergency physician and toxicologist. Despite the enormity of the problem, um, I don't feel it receives the, the attention it should. I really feel that this is you know, kind of the, the ignored killer in, the, in America. Then we'll hear what Appalachia has in common with Central New York from a certified industrial hygienist who visited recently. 80 miles north of here, uh, there are talc, lead, and zinc mines. Um, there's also poverty um, in upstate New York. So there were a lot of connections. And we'll explore whether low-fat or low-carb diets are better for losing weight with a registered dietitian nutritionist. So it was interesting that they didn't find anything to say, oh, if we put you on a low-fat diet, you're going to lose more weight than the person on the low-carb diet or vice versa. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about a region of the country with a long history of environmental contamination. Then we'll explore weight loss with foods low in fat and low in carbohydrates. But first, we get an update on the opioid crisis. Deaths from opioids outnumber deaths from gun violence or motor vehicle accidents. It's an ongoing problem in this country, and here to discuss it is Dr. Brett Charrington, an assistant professor of emergency medicine and a senior medical toxicology fellow at Upstate. Thank you for being here, Dr. Charrington. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it sounds like in your position, um, you're truly on the front lines of this epidemic. So um, tell me what your impression is. Why is it so huge? Of a crisis. Yeah, no, this, this really has been a, a growing issue, especially over the last decade or so. Um, a lot of the things that initially fueled this big opioid epidemic were uh, some of the pharmaceutical companies. You know, they really pushed for uh, aggressive treatment of pain and really pushed to, to have us consider pain as the fifth vital. Um, and initially, they, they really... Um, marketed their their drugs as you know safe and non-addicting and you know the number of opioid prescriptions you know skyrocketed um, you know the United States is responsible for the majority of the world's use of opioids uh, by far it's a very pretty significant number if you look up the actual statistics um, and you know that's it really just got out of control um, and now we're we're recognizing that and we're trying to uh, take some steps to to scale that back and help limit the number of opioid prescriptions. Um, but uh, as we do so, uh, you know, because because uh, opioids were so prevalent for so long, uh, heroin actually became cheaper. Um, and now, as we're starting to scale back uh, opioid prescriptions, um, people are starting to turn to heroin more, and and that's kind of fueling it. Uh, that and the the combination of uh, synthetic opioids such as fentanyl and fentanyl analogs becoming more readily available has really um, made this problem what it is today. Well, I want to talk to you in more detail about all of those things, um, but let's just, uh, opioid abuse is not such a, 
an issue in other areas of the world? This is sort of an American problem? Yeah, absolutely. And is it true that opioids are the number one cause of death among young, healthy adults? Correct. Yep. Yep. As you stated in your intro, it's responsible. Opioids and, and overdose deaths um, are responsible for for more deaths than you know motor vehicle accidents and from from gun violence wow. and despite despite the enormity of the problem um, i don't feel it receives the the attention it should i really feel that this is you know kind of the the ignored killer in the in america wow now you work shifts in the emergency department at upstate how often do you in, uh, take care of someone who's overdosing on opioids it's we typically will see at least one patient every shift. Um, sometimes, sometimes multiple patients, um, and you know it, there's always a little bit of a fluctuance, but uh, it's definitely a, a daily problem that we face. Male and female uh, Correct, patients, yeah. pretty equally distributed. Yeah, a little bit more male than female, but it crosses you know all demographics. We see it in you know young patients. We're even seeing it in among the elderly. And people that we wouldn't normally consider to be affected by substance abuse. Wow. Well, and I imagine even though um, intellectually we may understand that, you know, opioids are dangerous and can can kill you, it's got to still be a shock when it happens to someone you love. Do, do you see that? What's your experience with families in the emergency department having to be notified? Yeah, no, that can be you know, very challenging um, you know, a lot of times family members and friends um, are really kind of at their wits end. You know, they've been seeing their loved ones struggle with this for so long. And, you know, they want to do anything they can to help. But unfortunately, you know, there's inadequate resources. Um, and they struggle with that. We struggle with that as healthcare providers, you know, trying to find uh, the help that everybody needs. And you know it, it's it, it's a it's difficult, right? A lot of a lot of families, a lot of you know lives are just torn apart by this problem. Well, we've talked on HealthLink on air uh, in previous interviews about the use of naloxone as an antidote um, to opioid overdose. Um, are people dying because they're not getting the antidote fast enough or at all? Correct. Yeah. So we have definitely shown that uh, having more access to naloxone saves lives. Um, and we have you know, taken initiatives to try to help uh, disperse naloxone and make it more readily available. Uh, you, can go to, you can now go to your, your pharmacy and purchase naloxone without a prescription. Um, and we're definitely encouraging people to have that and to have access to it. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not always readily available, and when people um, are using opioids, you know they're not always telling people, and they're not always with other people who to monitor them and potentially administer, you know, the life-saving naloxone. And I know the ambulances um, carry this, but do you ever see, or have you ever seen patients who've uh, come to the emergency department? who've been given naloxone by a bystander? Is it out in the community enough that bystanders are using it? Yeah, we have seen a few instances Mm -hmm. with that, but it's definitely still by far um, our first responders that are administering naloxone. And we have 
you know, increased its availability, making it so that police officers and, and our basic EMS providers uh, can also carry and administer naloxone. Um, but, you know, we've definitely seen family members, you know, and, if, and we encourage, you know, if, if, if family members know that their loved one has a problem with substance abuse, we encourage them to carry a naloxone kit with them and we have seen instances where family members have been able to administer it and save the lives of their loved ones. Great. Well, I've got a few more questions, but this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Brett Charrington, an assistant professor of emergency medicine and a senior medical toxicology fellow. Um, I've heard the practice of speedballing is becoming, I don't know, popular again. Can you explain what that is and what's being done? Sure, yeah. So, so speedballing... Uh, you know, it's always been there. It's never, never gone away. Um, but, you know, there have recently been uh, an increase in the number of cocaine-related deaths. Uh, but speedballing basically is just uh, people mix uh, an upper, such as cocaine, uh, with a downer, such as an opioid. And they're typically doing that to try to help limit some of the side effects so if you use just straight cocaine, you tend to get some anxiety, some palpitations, you know, things like that. And so they'll use a little bit of, a, of the down or a little bit of the opioid to try to limit those side effects or vice versa. If they're using opioids primarily, they'll use a little bit of cocaine mixed in it to try to help keep them a little bit more awake, a little bit more um, aware, to help keep them breathing. Um, so it's just kind of that mixture and it's, it's really a dangerous game. You know, they're, they're kind of trying to increase the amount of one drug they can take by taking a little bit of another drug to, to limit side effects. And unfortunately, it, it has caused numerous deaths. Um, so, and, and as I said, the, the number of cocaine deaths have increased recently, but when you compare that to the number of opioid deaths, it still uh, pales in comparison. It's, it's almost a, an order of magnitude difference the number of people dying from cocaine versus the number of people dying from opioids. So this idea of mixing two dangerous drugs, basically, and taking them together, does that make it that much more dangerous? Because you're mixing... Correct, yeah. It's just, okay. it's very difficult to know the exact amounts that you're, you're getting. Um, and sometimes people will purposefully alter the concentration or the amount of drugs in in uh, the products they sell for various reasons. Um, and so people never know exactly, you know, what they're getting into. And it's not an exact science. And, and you know, people oftentimes will do this to try to use more than they normally could, and they get themselves into trouble. Well, let's talk about fentanyl, because um, I've heard that's a major contributing factor to the overdose deaths. What, what is fentanyl, and, and why, why are we concerned about that? So fentanyl is a, a very common um, opioid analgesic or pain medication. Uh, we use it very commonly in hospital settings to treat people's pain. Um, it's, it, it is an opioid, so it acts just like morphine or heroin, uh, but it's a synthetic, meaning that it's more chemically derived and it doesn't share the same structure as some of the uh, more natural opiates like like morphine or heroin, um, but the production of fentanyl has is significantly increased. Um, the majority of the fentanyl that uh, 
we have is actually comes from China and then gets imported uh, into the United States through various methods. But uh, all of our all of our heroin is now laced with fentanyl, um, and a lot of times. Um, when people go out to purchase what they believe to be heroin, a lot of times it's just straight fentanyl. Um, I've had people actually tell me that they, they know where to go to buy fentanyl, uh, and they prefer to use straight fentanyl because it doesn't show up on routine drug screens. And so they know that they can use that and kind of you know, still pass their drug screens and not get into problems from that. The um, autopsy for Prince... Um, showed exceedingly high concentration of fentanyl. So it's it's out there and people are using Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Is it more dangerous than heroin or cocaine? So it's, it's more potent than heroin. It's roughly um, 100 to 1,000 times more potent. So when people use it, they need to use much smaller doses. Um, and that's where people run into problems because, as we discussed, it's not an exact science and the, the actual amount in, the, in drugs is not, you know, there's a, a significant variation. So when you're using something like heroin, you know, a 10% error in dosing isn't as significant. Uh, but when you're using something much more potent like, like fentanyl, you know, a 10% error in dosage can be lethal. And if you're, like you mentioned, you may think you're getting heroin, but it's laced with or is just fentanyl. You don't really Correct. know what you're taking. How would you even begin to take a safe, if there is such a thing, safe amount? Exactly, yeah. And then, you know, there's, there's fentanyl itself, and then there's, a, there's multiple uh, fentanyl analogs, like furanyl fentanyl and car fentanyl and acetyl fentanyl and, and many others. And some of those um, are even more potent than fentanyl itself, such as car fentanyl, which is, you know, about a thousand times more potent. It's so. Wow. Now, does naloxone work to reverse fentanyl? It does. It does. Okay. But sometimes, because as we discussed, fentanyl is more potent, uh, sometimes it requires higher doses of naloxone. Okay. Okay, well, let me ask you this. You're, in, you're working in the emergency department, and you're able to help save the life of someone who's brought in overdosing on an opioid. What happens then? What do you do to try to make sure they're not out using again and back in the emergency department overdosed another day. Sure, yeah. So uh, as I stated, you know, a lot of our resources are unfortunately vastly inadequate. Um, you know, years back, you know, all we really could do was we would have one of our social workers uh, come talk with the patient and give them a list of outpatient addiction service, uh, addiction services in the, in the area and then we would encourage the patient to make some phone calls and try to initiate treatment for themselves. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't work. Um, uh, so we've made some initiatives here, especially at Upstate, to try to um, provide more options and better care for these individuals. Uh, Dr. Ross Sullivan, a fellow medical toxicologist and ER uh, physician that I work with, uh, has started up a a buprenorphine bridge clinic. Uh, so buprenorphine, uh, also commonly known as Suboxone, is a medication that's been approved for the treatment of opioid addiction and opioid uh, withdrawal and cravings. 
Um, it's commonly referred to as a form of medication-assisted treatment. Another similar medication is methadone, uh, but buprenorphine is a little bit easier to prescribe, a little bit uh, more uh, often for methadone, you have to go in for daily doses. Mm-hmm. But with buprenorphine, once you've been established on the drug, you know sometimes you can get a one-month script at a time. So it's got an easier access for patients to use. And uh, so we've started this bridge clinic. And now when individuals show up to the upstate emergency department, uh, we can give them a referral to this bridge clinic. And if they're amenable to that and uh, willing to work with us, we start them on buprenorphine and we um, help link them to an outpatient addiction program. And we continue to prescribe their Suboxone or buprenorphine until they can get transitioned to an outpatient provider who then takes over their, their prescribing of buprenorphine. We've seen a lot of success with that. One of the big challenges for these individuals is even if they try to seek treatment on their own by going to an outpatient addiction program, it's generally at least a month or so before they actually see a Suboxone or Buprenorphine provider. And well, that's good to know that we have this availability that's almost immediate uh, if they act on it quickly. My guest has been Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine and Senior Medical Toxicology Fellow, Dr. Brett Charrington. And I want to also give the phone number for the Poison Center that he's part of. It's 1-800-222-1222. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. up next, what Appalachia has in common with Central New York. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Service trips and volunteerism have become popular options for vacation breaks. And here to talk about a recent trip to coal country is Greg Siwinski, a certified industrial hygienist and an adjunct instructor of family medicine who works in the Occupational Health Clinical Center at Upstate. Thanks for coming to HealthLink on Air. Hi. Good morning. So you spent spring break, essentially, with two van loads of teens and chaperones from Syracuse traveling to West Virginia, and you were there for a week or so? Right. Um, Can you tell us about the project? How was this arranged? Yeah, it was really uh, sort of came to uh, being through our church, uh, the Universalist um, uh, Church here in uh, Syracuse, and it was organized uh, by the uh, headquarters in Boston. This is a long-term established project. society uh, and it's really this trip was around social justice issues and we, we try to bring our teens into some sort of uh, awareness of the world around them and um, that's really the purpose of going to uh, West Virginia um, very unique area of the country so why did you decide that you wanted to spend your time doing this well uh, first off I wasn't so excited uh, I think of other places to go <laughs> I'd, uh, on a week but uh, 
First off, you know, I, I really felt protective of my teen daughter, who happens to be from China, and also she's part of the gay community. And I thought, you know, going to West Virginia, of what I've heard and, uh, you know, my, my impressions, I think I should tag along just for being a concerned parent. But as time went on, I realized um, I was going to an area that is uh, full of historic issues around my profession. I mean, I've read many history books about uh, occupational disease uh, in the United States, and West Virginia uh, is mentioned many, many times. So, this is the Appalachian region, right? Oh yeah, it's uh, you know the mountainous uh, area, Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia. It's um, coal country. Uh, it's West Virginia mountaineers. Um, six, seven generations of uh, coal miners. Um, it really has it all in terms of um, occupational disease and exploitation, I hate to say it. And you'd never been in that region before? No, never. Um, okay. So what did you do while you were there? What was what the time? Well, we made with? some connections with the local uh, UU um, church as a base, but then we actually lived for five days in a holler. Now, a holler is a... A hollow between two mountains, and this particular holler um, was a uh, coal mine up at the head of the holler. Um, and it is a pretty backwater, isolated area, a no cell connection. Uh, they have electricity and running water, um, but it's really in the heart of the mountains. And we stayed with this um, group, and I think of it as a community labor. Um, support group is a Southern Appalachian Labor School that has been around for 40 years trying to help community uh, and workers in the region uh, on many different aspects of life. So while you were there, um, did you see any similarities between West Virginia and upstate New York? You know, not initially, but on the way home, um, I really made those connections. Um, you know, the extraction industry, things like gas, oil, mining, timber, have a sort of a unique relationship with the earth and with, um, I guess, management who uh, profits off of these industries. And it's, it's really an example of extreme um, uh, exploitation of people doing very hard, dangerous work. And we have that in upstate New York. Um, for example, 80 miles north of here, uh, there are talc, lead, and zinc mines. Uh, where men and women go below the earth to uh, make a living. Um, there's also poverty um, in upstate New York. Um, so there were a lot of connections. Do the workers there who are, as you describe, being exploited, do they know that? Oh, yeah. Do they recognize that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why uh, they fought so long and hard to uh, become unionized. You know, back in the uh, 30s and 40s, I mean, there was um, serious, serious conflict on their right to organize a union to better their work conditions. Um, they're very aware of that. Uh, but people ask, why they still go under, uh, in the hole, as they say, in the, uh, in the mine? Um, well, where else can they make $60,000, $70,000 um, in this area, right? And the options are pretty slim. Uh, so it really comes down to economics. Did anything surprise you while you were there? Yeah, it did. Um, first off, a lot of strangers passing by in a, a car coming down the lane would wave to you. And I 
I thought when I first saw this, with New York plates, uh, the last thing they would do is wave. But there are a lot of friendly people there. Um, and, you know, they didn't judge us um, as many people do these days. Um, and you really had to get to know them to appreciate their background, their culture, their history. Um, so that was really um, um, delightful. Well, I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Greg Siwinski from Upstate's Occupational Health Clinical Center uh, about a trip recently to um, Appalachia. Um, So a good part of this trip was intended to sort of look at the struggles of coal miners. Um, Did you learn anything in that regard that you weren't already aware of by virtue of your job? Yeah, well, uh, you know, having read... uh about uh, coal-related lung disease and, and other occupational hazards in my uh, career, uh, I saw it firsthand. Um, I was able to strike up some conversations with uh, miners who were struggling with um, serious respiratory disease from their work in the mines. Um, you know, fairly disabled, uh, talked to widows whose husbands died in their 50s, and um, it's a very real issue. Um, And I guess what uh, connects me directly to this, um, we saw, our center saw the very first coal miner back in November, uh, because New York State really doesn't have any coal mines. This fellow was uh, relocated here, and he came to us with a um, very advanced form of coal-related lung disease. And I met with him in the exam room and talked to him about the details of how he got uh, so sick. And he described... Uh, working conditions in the mines these days are um, highly profit motivated and run the coal means you extract coal at all costs and what that meant is they're running um, machines under the uh, earth uh, without using dust suppression uh, systems like water and they're going after thinner seam coals Uh, coal seams uh, that are generating uh, rock dust, which has silica in it. This fellow was about 35, and um, he had a um, subacute disease, and his uh, prognosis is not so good. So there's protective measures that could be taken that aren't being... Right. I mean, there are ways to uh, keep people uh, safer under, underground, uh, but the coal industry has quite a record of uh, trying to defeat that. Um, back in the 90s, the coal industry was caught uh, cheating on air samples, actually removing the dust out of the uh, special cassettes mm-hmm. that they're sent to the lab to analyze uh, for the reason to uh, basically hide their conditions because they weren't following the uh, protective uh, issues. Um, just a few years ago, uh, 29 miners died in an underground coal blast because of management's total disregard of safety uh, uh, for those miners. Um, now, you work in occupational health here at Upstate. Can you describe a little bit about what that department offers? And Yeah, uh, well, it's pretty. Uh, our system of these uh, centers throughout New York State is totally unique in the United States. We are publicly funded. There are 11 throughout New York State. I work at three of them and up through um, central New York. And our only goal and focus is to diagnose and treat occupational disease. 
lung disease, all the other uh, uh, neurological diseases that occur from chemicals used at work or radiation or, or hearing loss. Uh, um, and it's, a very, uh, it's actually very rare for an individual like me to be working at one of these uh, clinical centers. Uh, I'm the environmental work scientist to sort of help the clinicians put the pieces of the puzzle together about the patient we're seeing. So in addition, industrial, uh, certified industrial hygienists such as yourself, but there's physicians. Um, oh, yeah, and... we're uh, fully staffed, uh, nurse practitioners and nurses and social worker, which is also a unique uh, position. Uh, because once you get sick from work, uh, most times you can't work. And life begins to fall apart on you. And so uh, there are uh, benefits like workers' compensation, but very difficult to get these awards. Um, and as these lives unravel, social worker is a really important part of the puzzle. I imagine. Did you, um, thinking about your, your role here at Upstate, did you learn anything or come away with any impressions from West Virginia um, that would inform your, your work at Upstate in some way? Well, it really confirmed that uh, uh, working class people um, have a tough go in life, um, be it employment or disease, um, health care, for example. Um, it's, it's really related to everywhere, I think, perhaps in the world. Um, and, you know, try to uh, prevent disease uh, is really the key, and that's my role, but very challenging to do that. I mean, we always think about, you know, an uh, ounce of prevention is worth a million dollars in cure. Um, that still hasn't sunk in with uh, a lot of people um, in power. Um, the other connection I made is the, um, you know, the race uh, 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 cultural divide um, that I thought was in West Virginia um, wasn't so great uh, as I thought, um, although it's still there. Um, there were black miners involved in this, and we saw many uh, African-American people um, in West Virginia. That surprised me. Um, but we also see those racial divides here uh, in upstate New York. And along those divides, there's an economic uh, division, um, a very similar pattern. So some of the stereotypes aren't accurate? Yeah, uh, uh, that's true. You know, I went down there, I watched a lot of YouTube videos of Appalachian people, and uh, when I got there, it was, um, well, that, um, that was not so accurate. And it was a real pleasure to interact with some of these folks. Um, and um, I'll take away that um, from this trip. Did you go into a coal mine? or? Oh, yeah, we went to a tourist uh, coal mine. Uh, oh. and it's all uh, staged and uh, very nice, and it's an enjoyable trip, um, but it, not the reality of uh, being in an active mine. So mountaintop uh, strip mining is a, uh, a quite a um, man-made event is where very large machines and lots of dynamite um, blow off the tops of mountains, literally, to extract coal without sending men into a mine. Um, and they can do this uh, with less manpower, and I suppose it's cheaper. Um, when you visit this site, uh, it looks like a moonscape. Um, there's not much growing. Um, the soil is um, just not... Uh, conducive to grow anything. So we went to a reclamation site um, near the Kentucky border that was trying to grow pigs, chickens, and goats on this uh, plot of land. And also they were trying to grow lavender because lavender lights very lousy, rocky soil. 
And what I saw was um, sort of a, an experiment that I'm not so comfortable it's really going to succeed. Um, but it was good for the teens and for us to uh, see uh, the consequences of, I think, um, 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 poor decisions. How did the teens process all of this? Well, being 15s and 16 years, years old, you know, it takes a while for them to, uh, I think, really have it sink in. I mean, they were... Um, shocked at some points, uh, you know, listening to the local language and dialect, um, and the music uh, wasn't quite appealing to them. Um, but uh, I'm hopeful that uh, they're still processing this. Well, thank you so much for being willing to share your experiences. Um, my guest has been Greg Siwinski. He's a certified industrial hygienist and an instructor of family medicine who works in the Occupational Health Clinical Center at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, which diet is better for weight loss, low fat or low carb? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some new research suggests that the key to weight loss is the quality of a diet, not necessarily the quantity. The counting calories may not matter. This is based on one randomized clinical trial published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, where researchers followed more than 600 adults for 12 months. Here to help us understand what this study found is Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Let me start by sharing with listeners what the New York Times wrote about this study. Um, it found that people who cut back on added sugar, refined grains, and highly processed foods while concentrating on eating plenty of vegetables and whole foods without worrying about counting calories or limiting portion sizes lost significant amounts of weight over the course of a year. The strategy worked for people whether they followed diets that were mostly low in fat or mostly low in carbohydrates, and their success did not appear to be influenced by their genetics or their insulin response to carbohydrates. So that sounds really intriguing. What did, what did you think of this? Oh, I thought um, this is a fascinating study. It has a lot of education involved in it that I know we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, one comment I do have is when the article said significant, I think it's important to realize what are they classifying as significant? So the average weight loss um, between the two groups was anywhere from approximately 13 pounds to 11 pounds. And remember, this was a 12-month study. To me, that's significant. To some people, they think, oh, that's all I've lost. But if it's maintained and sustained, you can do that again. So I think that's what the significant part of it is. I don't want people thinking like, oh, wow, these people lost you know 50 pounds with this. Most people are going to go, really? You only lost 12 pounds? But it was because of the lifestyle changes, I think. Ah, interesting. Well, let's talk about how this study was conducted, because it had a lot of people in it, more than 600. Yep, 600 people, um, men and women, anywhere between 18 to 15, BMI between 28 and 40, um, and they were assigned to different groups in terms of one was called the healthy low-fat diet plan, and the other one was a healthy low-carb plan. Um, and 
they were looking at if we could see any difference between these two types of plans and the effect in terms of um, insulin secretion, genotype, and weight loss. So quite a lot of things that they were looked at in terms of this study. Um, and there's some of the things in terms of the, the emphasis on the article seems to be about not counting calories. But I think one of the important things of this study is they weren't counting calories, but they were looking at not only quality and good high quality foods, but they were looking at quantity and quantity in terms of what each individual could sustain. So I think that's important. So it might have not been, oh, you're on a 1200 calorie, 1600 calorie, whatever, but they were looking and they were giving guidelines in terms of how many grams of fat and how many grams of carbohydrate. So okay. I think that's important for people to realize. It wasn't just, oh, I never have to count calories again. I still think it's an important thing that they did look at it from a, I would say, a portion control standpoint. Okay. And what did they end up, what were the findings, the overall findings? The findings were that they didn't really notice any significant difference between these, that um, they didn't, they th we're trying to see if they could see that, but they really didn't see any difference. The calorie range in terms of um, what people decreased um, from the study is anywhere from five to 600 calories. Um, as I say, the weight range was 13 to 11, so not, not huge differences between the two groups. So it was interesting that they didn't find anything to say, oh, if we put you on a low-fat diet, you're going to lose more weight than the person on the low-carb diet or vice versa. Does this mean that counting calories doesn't is not effective or shouldn't be used? I mean, a lot of people do follow. A lot of people do follow calories. And I think, again, uh, one of the main things of the study, which I found the best part of the study was the individualization of it. So I think if counting calories works for you and you are keeping a good weight and good blood pressure and all the good things that we talk about in terms of health, if that works for you, great. If it works for you to be more general, and we've talked about different diets like the DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet, if it works for you to say, I'm just going to increase my vegetables two to three servings in a day, then that could work for you. So I think, to me, that is the key of this study from a dietary nutritionist standpoint, that it looked at each individual and said, we're not going to tell you go on a 1,200 calorie. We're going to tell you these are the guidelines. You figure out what's going to work for you. And that, to me, is the beauty of this. And one of the big aspects of this study was um, behavior modification, right? Totally. And, and they met 22 times, which in a in my, my world, it's like, oh, I would love to meet with my patients once a month or those kinds of things. They met 22 sessions, an hour-long session, and the majority, a lot of them was on meal planning, um, shopping, mindful eating, food and mood. So a good percentage of these classes were based on how do you perceive food, how do you use food, and what are you doing, and are you being actually mindful, which I think is when we talk about not counting calories, mindful eating to me is the way that I think it's important for people to look at. What am I doing? And I need to think about what I'm doing. Maybe not count calories, because again, I think that's the thing. It doesn't always last. But if I'm trying to say, I need to add more vegetables, then be specific. How many vegetables do I need to add every day? So I think that's a real key in terms of this. And they had a professional to help them yep. through all of this. All the educators were all registered dietitians, which I was so excited about. <laughs> Neat. Well, um, this study asked people to cut back on added sugar, refined grains, and highly processed foods. Yes. How hard is that to do? Again, 
it can be very difficult depending on what your typical intake is. So if you're a soda drinker or you're a, a person that relies heavily on processed foods and you don't, you know, think about quinoa and farro and bulgur and those kinds of things, um, it could be a big change for you. So again, I think that's it individualization and what could I do? How can I start introducing? Maybe I should try farro. Maybe I should try a quinoa salad, those kinds of things in, in terms of it. Um, so I think it can be hard. And I think mm, one of the take-home messages with this should be to people is don't give up. This was a 12-month study. People had success with weight loss, um, but it was looking at what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis, and they were the ones in control. And I think that's a big key of this. We can give people tools. There's so much out there. But you have to be able to take those tools and individualize it to what's happening to you and your family and what you want to do. So it can be hard. You can make it hard or you can make it simple. You can make it and say, oh, I've got that. I did that. Wow, I've got a success on, you know, on my plate. Um, and, and say, all right, what's my next step? Well, and again, they had a professional helping them learn what quinoa was and yes. how to how yes. to choose something that doesn't have as much sugar as some. right. So, um, the foods that people were allowed to eat pretty much as many as they wanted were vegetables and whole foods. What do we mean by whole foods? Um, we're talking in terms of fruits, vegetables, something that's not been taken. So, say, take steel cut oats. All right, we have steel cut oats. No, no real processing, steel cutouts. It takes a long time to cook, you know, again, good high fiber. Then we go to regular. Then we could go to quick cooking oats. Then we could go to instant oats. So as we get down there, we get away from the, the highest fiber content. We get away from the whole grain, and we make it quicker and easier because we've broken those things down. That instant oatmeal, very low fiber content. Boom, quick and easy. Steel cut, oh, I don't have time to do that. Well, you do on the weekend, but it's those kinds of things. So we're getting more into those whole foods, fruits, vegetables, those kinds of things. Um, I'm going to do uh, brown rice. I'm going to do quinoa. I'm going to make a salad out of farro, those kinds of things. Those are the good whole grains. All right, interesting. Uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate, about healthy eating. Um, this particular study, it also measured uh, people's insulin secretion. Mm -hmm. what, what is that? Well, what they did is they did a, um, it's called a glucose tolerance test, an oral glucose tolerance test. So the people were given roughly 75 grams of um, glucose, and then they were tested 30 months after, uh, 30, excuse me, 30 minutes after to see in terms of how their body and what the insulin secretion was for them individually. So it's like basically what happens when you have this amount of carbohydrate glucose into your system, what's happening within your system in terms of the insulin to take that and to utilize it. Okay. And then um, these were not people with diabetes. These, this study, the people did not have diabetes. So that's an important thing too. Because again, it could be different depending and, you know, there's a lot of different variances with um, patients with diabetes. And this study also looked at whether there's any truth to the idea that a personalized nutrition advice um, based on genotype, mm -hmm. um, whether that can help people, you know, lose weight. And, and they didn't see any difference with that either, too, because, again, sometimes you see different things in terms of, you know, your blood type and the different types of diets that are out there. So this was actually something that said, no, that's not it. It was really, I think the key of this, it was the individualization and the behavior modification in terms of it. They used a great strategy, which I think is wonderful. They called it the limbo strategy, go as low as you can go. So when they were counseling these patients, they basically said to them, we're going to give you guidelines. We'd like you to give no more than, they started out with no more than 20 grams of fat or slash carbohydrates. But they said, if you can't achieve that, you go as low as you can go. 
And then the key was you go where you can meet it, and then you try and sustain that. And that, I think, is the key. It wasn't saying, go do this. This is what we're telling you to do. And then people saying, well, I can't do it, so I'm not going to do it anyways. It was putting the control back, I think, on the individual, which I think is the key. Um, and they had some that were following low-fat and some that were following low-carb. Low-carb. Did it surprise you that there was not an appreciable difference in the two groups as to who? Not really, because when I looked at this study, the real ma- main emphasis for both the groups when, um, when I was reading in terms of what they did in terms of the education is they were saying to them first, we really want you to concentrate on vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. So when I look at that, they're already low in fat. They're already probably lower in carbs, okay, or they're a good fiber, so there's a good combination of that carb fiber. So when I looked at that, no, it was kind of interesting because I thought they they started out with the same premise. Let's go for whole grain, good quality, fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Well, one criticism of um, diets for losing weight is that people may do well when they're following them, but then when they're done with their diet, they go back to their you know, they're, they're bad habits. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so does this address that? Well, I don't think the article addressed it. I think this addressed it when I, when I was looking over everything because I think what it was saying is there's hope. Okay, these people were followed for 12 months, 22 hour-long sessions, intense, I think, in terms of behavioral modification, nutrition education. And they saw weight loss. Did they see what we're always thinking we're supposed to get? No, but I think they saw weight loss. So to me, it's saying, don't give up. I think there's hope in terms of that because I think what happens, what you just said, people go on, quote, a diet. What is that? Is that something they're going to sustain? Probably not. So that's what's a part of this study is what can you change and then what can you sustain after this 12-month study for lifelong. So I think that is a really big take-home message. Don't go on something that you in your back of your mind are saying, I'm just going to follow this for a couple weeks. Look at what you can actually do that says, okay, I can do this, and I'm going to try and do this for the next six months. Break it down. Do it for three months, six months, and then see how am I doing in terms of that. So I think that's a real key in terms of that. I thought it was, I thought it was a fascinating well, one of the takeaway messages um, is that people who want to lose weight maybe don't need to focus so much on calories, but on eating a foundational mm-hmm. diet. They yes. use the word foundational. More vegetables, more whole foods, less added sugar, less refined grains. As a dietitian nutritionist, um, you can share those instructions with people, but how do you help them put it into practice? Into practice? Are there some guidelines for... Um, I always start with, you need to look at what you're doing on your own personal basis, are you drinking sodas? Are you eating processed foods? What are you doing? Are you not are you not eating vegetables? So you need to look at what you're doing and then you need to look at what can you change? Again, same thing what this study is saying. What can you? How's your limbo? How low is your limbo? Um, and what can you do that makes it livable for me? What can you do if you can say, I can easily buy bag salad and then I'll add some purple cabbage to it and some shredded things. And I'm going to try and have a salad every day. Sometimes it's so little simple things that we tend not to think that they're positive. And I think that's a big key. People are like, no, I got to do something really big and I got to do this drastic change and I'm going to do it for two or three weeks and then I'm going to get sick of it and I'm going to go back to my lifestyle changes. So it's looking at what am I doing? What are those lifestyle changes? What one or two small changes can you make that you go, oh, this wasn't so bad. This was easy. Oh, I can do this. I'd rather have clients say, 
oh, that's all you want me to do for now? I'm like, yeah. I want you to say you're drinking two bottles of soda. And you say, yeah, I do it every day. Well, look at the size of your soda. Can you go down to one bottle? Instead of saying, I'm never having soda. And then in the back of your mind, you're saying, I'm not going to. I can't do that. But if you can gradually get used to it and then say, oh, let's get some seltzer water here. Let's get some more water. Little gradual changes. And those little gradual changes might turn into it's a habit now it's, and you don't even think about it. That's right. You always have a salad or you don't have... It becomes a- part of your routine. And that's what you've got to look at. What's your routine? And you want to slowly change your routine. But you want to do it in a way that... It just gradually becomes part of your routine, and it's not so drastic that it isn't sustainable. Well, very encouraging news. Thank you so much for going Thank over you. this with us. Uh, my guest has been registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Lori Hawks is a writing teacher whose earliest memory of writing includes her using her crayons to write on the wall above her crib. I'll read an excerpt from her essay, Seeking Oz. It reminds all of us, patients, physicians, those who are well and those who are not, that we all have much in common more even than we know. Seeking Oz. I am made of tin and fur and straw. I have days when my heart hurts and days when it feels like it's missing altogether. Then there are the days when my mind feels lost and the days when it's busy accumulating more lesions. My brain is damaged, but is still beautiful, still brilliant. My heart hurts, but still beats, still loves. The wizards, They treat us like our minds are separate from our hearts, when we all know they are connected. After all, you can think with your heart. We call it intuition. Dorothy called it her yellow brick road. We try to follow it. But the wizards divide us. They divide up our organs and send us packing. We carry our segmented bodies from one wizard to the next. We ask to be fixed. They try just that one piece. Even if they fix your pieces, you are left to your own devices to gather them up and to try to fit them neatly back together. You try, you try, you keep trying. All of this trying takes courage. It takes courage to fight for this body, but it takes even more. It takes heart. It takes mind over matter. It takes everything. Because we are made of tin and fur and straw, we are made of brains and courage and heart. We are made of stardust, and we are all connected. Don't let the wizards tell you something different. They use fear to scare us. They use pills to numb us. They use props to fool us. They use knowledge to intimidate us. They hide behind their curtains with smoke and mirrors. When all along, we are made of the very same tin and fur and straw. While all along they are scrambling to reassemble unhinged pieces of their own brains and hearts, while they too are questioning their courage, and all of us are desperately seeking Oz.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll learn about antidepressant withdrawal. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.